Lord Jesus, I thank you that it is finished. I thank you that there is no more condemnation for those who are in you. And so now we're not here to earn anything. We're not here to make you like us more. We're not here to receive forgiveness because there's nothing we can do to receive forgiveness. We are here in response, Jesus, to what you did for us on the cross. You paid our debt. You earned our forgiveness. You adopted us into your family and you call us sons and daughters if by faith we have accepted you as Lord. Now we're part of your family and now we get to just live in response. You said that eternal life is knowing you and that the greatest commandment is loving you. And so we love you and we wanna know you and we wanna just relate with you together this morning. So meet with us, Holy Spirit, please be here. Do what we can't do, change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how were the pyramids made? You ever thought about that? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said aliens. I, I actually looked it up, all the theories of how the pyramids were made, and nobody has any idea. Um, yeah, if you saw Stargate, the pyramids are actually spaceship landing pads. So, um, and that's actually a theory out there, a real one that people believe that aliens built them. But there's all, I looked it up. It's kind of interesting. There's the ramp technique that we've probably all seen where they built ramps all the way up and they drag these giant stones up. Or there's a, a water technique where they built channels of water there and floated these stones down and, and put them up. Or levitation is one of the theories of how the, yeah, levitate. I got a thumbs up from Morgan, levitation. <laughs> Of, of how the pyramids were built, but we have no idea. We have no idea how they were built. How, is there a way that we could know for sure how the pyramids were built? Maybe if there was blueprints, maybe we dug up some blueprints that somebody had written down. Maybe the chief engineer that designed it and planned it wrote it all out. What if we found those somewhere uh, in a cave? Then we would be able to go, oh, this is how the pyramids were built. And if we found that, what would that say to all the other theories? They're bunk. We, we, could, we could know the truth. We could look at the blueprints and say, that's how they were built. So when somebody comes in and says, aliens, we'll say, no, blueprints. You know, or if somebody was there, an eyewitness that somehow didn't ever die, and they were here and could tell us about it, would we listen to any other theory other than the one that saw it or the one that designed it? In a similar way, the deepest questions we have as humans, the deepest questions about origin, where did we come from? About creation. How did the earth get here? About purpose. Why are we here? About the future. Where are we going? About current life, morality. How are we supposed to live and relate? What if there was an authoritative answer on those questions? Because the world is full of experts, full of experts that, that try and answer those questions, but it's kind of like looking back at the pyramids and saying, well, maybe this, maybe that. All of our experts that give us the answers are just that, people looking and kind of guessing, guessing at how we got here, guessing, with, you know, some of them are educated guesses, some of them are guesses with certain uh, hypotheses already there or certain biases already there, but all the experts are telling us all these different answers to our deepest questions of how we got here, why we're here. But today we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, 8 through 15, because the answer is that there was somebody there at the beginning. There was somebody that is giving us all the answers, and that's Jesus Christ. And the situation that they had there in, in Colossae was the church was established. This is Christians that he's writing to, and people are coming in and trying to convince them that they need Jesus plus some other things. 
And here he's going to address those other things and go right to the heart of where the source is, where we can have truth. And one of the wrestles that we have whenever we read the Bible is what did this mean? And this, is, this will be helpful for you as you read on your own. What did this mean when it was written? The original author, what was their intent when they wrote it? We need to figure out what that is. Then we can figure out how does that apply now? And sometimes it's a direct application now. Sometimes it's not. But we can never read the Bible and go, oh, what do I think that means? It only means what it meant to whoever wrote it when they wrote it. And so the application is really only whatever they intended people to believe and do in response. That's our same application. And so we need to take that and do a little bit of work to make it apply now. But unfortunately, this is very applicable today. I mean, today we have all these questions, again, of origin, of morality. This is one we deal with now, maybe more than ever with the family, sexuality, marriage, all of those things. Where can we stand on that? Uh, absolute truth. Where can we stand on those things? We have to take a stand. And the answer is here in scripture. I'm going to read all of our verses for the day. That's uh, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. I'm going to read them and then we'll go through them. But as we read, think about the context. Think about there are people in their midst right now trying to convince them of things that aren't true. Some of them sound good. Some of them are close. And this is the response that Paul is giving to them. Starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Holy Spirit, make known to us your word, what we need to understand and what we need to do in response. We need you in Jesus name. Amen. So as you see here, he begins this section. What we looked at two weeks ago, we looked at, at Romans, or I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. That was kind of a, a transition two verses there where it talked about Jesus dwelling in us, that our life is in Jesus. And he's, that he's transferring to this warning now. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Because look at verse six and seven, we are, are established in the faith, we are built up, we are rooted in Jesus because he dwells in us now as Christians, he's talking to Christians, see to it no one takes you captive. We are in danger of believing false ideas that hurt and kill us. That's why he starts it this way. These words here, it says, see, no one takes you captive. I mean, just imagine taking captive. You know, what's that look like? That's a violent thing. 
somebody taking you, binding you up and, and, and pulling you away, taking captive. This isn't some little thing like, you know, false truth. Eh. This is taking captive. This is a big deal. Why is he so dramatic about being taken captive by philosophy? And we know it by the other, the next verses uh, in verse Well, still in verse eight, it says, see to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. This is such a big deal because this false thinking is backed by demons. That's what he's saying. There, this is a spiritual battle and there are demons behind the false thinking that are trying to lead you astray. So don't be taken captive by this. Don't be taken captive. Don't be swayed. Now, Paul, I think this is interesting. Paul is going to choose not to name each errant thinking. There's a handful. And we know, we know what some of them are. We don't know what all of them are. But I think it's interesting. He does address a couple slightly, but he doesn't go right to each thing. Instead, what he does is say, don't be taken captive. And then he lifts up Jesus. And I think that's really important for us to understand. We can get so wrapped up into trying to address each false thinking that comes our way rather than just looking at Jesus. And so that's what Paul does. So notice that as we go through how he, he doesn't try and disprove all these other things. Instead, he lifts up Jesus as the other side. We've talked about this before. Uh, people that are looking for counterfeit money, counterfeit dollar bills, they, they don't study the counterfeits as much as they study the original and then when a counterfeit comes across their, their path, they can see the difference. That's kind of what Paul's doing here, going, you have all this other stuff going on. Well, here's Jesus. And so how does it compare? Now, that being said, it is helpful at times to study the details. I don't want us to be anti-intellectual and say, you know what, we don't study the opposing views because that is important. You know, there's, there's some of those amazing thinkers out there, C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias, J.P. Moreland, people that as I read them, it just blows my mind. And they're able to address some of these false thinkings. You know, today we live in a day where there's, there's this idea of, of relativism, of, of no absolutes. You know, you can believe what you want to believe. And if you've had conversations with people in the world, you've heard this. You believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want to believe. And they're all true. There are no absolutes. And I was reading a, a book by Ravi Zacharias where he was talking about this. And, and I think there was a debate that they were in. And they were debating truth. And, and the guy was saying, there's no knowable truth. You can't know anything. There's no absolute morality. He says, so there's no absolute truth. He says, right. Are you absolutely sure? He says, the, the statement, there is no absolute truth, is an absolute statement. Which means it's self-contradictory. And it's not true. So we don't normally think that way though. I mean, to be honest, there's, and there's a lot of other arguments and I read those and I go, I want to think like that, but I'll be honest in general, I, I don't. And so I'm encouraged that some people do think that way and I can read them, but better than trying to learn all the arguments is to look at Jesus. Better than trying to get really good at all that intellectual, you know, chess playing, look at Jesus, get to know Jesus and we can lift him up. And that's what he does here. That's what Paul does as he lifts up Jesus. But here's, here's what we're going to see coming through, that the answers that the Colossians were, were receiving to these deep questions were leading them away from Jesus and toward mystical religion and law. So we have questions. We have all these things going on in our lives. Theirs were a little bit different. Most of their questions were spiritual in nature. They lived in, in the first century where everybody believed in God. Everybody believed there was 
in general, multiple gods, many gods. And the belief in that day was that there's many gods. There's a God for this, a God for that. And you need to appeal to the right one in the right way to get what you need, to get the blessing. And so it would be sacrifices or it would be festivals or, or rituals and those things to the right God. And so there, those were their issues. Ours are a little bit different. That's why it's helpful for us to recognize we live in a world that's very, a society that's very materialistic. That's really, we came about by natural means. There is no spiritual. So our empty deceit, our philosophies are going to be a little bit different from what theirs were. But philosophy, he says, don't be taken care, captive by philosophy. The word philosophy is a love of wisdom, a love of wisdom. And so we need to recognize though that Paul is not against wisdom. He's not against thinking, but he's against worldly thinking that leads away from Jesus. But they're going to, answer these questions. You know, what is God like? How can I be complete? Those are the questions we ask. If there are gods or God, how can I appease those gods? How can I receive salvation or blessing? And I think it's important to notice, this kind of struck me this morning as I was praying over this, uh, the heavy theme of spiritual warfare here. Because he mentions demons, demonic spirits several times. And in, in 1 Corinthians and also in Deuteronomy, we see that, that any idols, which for them, they would worship these false idols. The Bible says, Paul writes elsewhere, that these idols are not gods, but they are demons. So behind all the idols they had were actual demons. So there was actual spiritual power in their false thinking. In their, remember when Moses went before Pharaoh and he, he threw a staff down and it turned into a serpent? And the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same thing. They threw down their staffs and they turned into serpents. And then Moses' ate the other ones, kind of a cool story. But the, the point is that, that the demonic world has spiritual power. They can do signs and wonders. And so false idol, uh, idols, false thinking is backed by demons. And then it was spiritual in nature. But now, in general, it's not as spiritual in nature, but I would say just as demonic. Uh, maybe you saw... You shouldn't have, but uh, a movie years ago, The Usual Suspects. And, and the bad guy is kind of hidden through it. And he makes a comment at one point. He says, the best trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. I thought, that's the world we live in now. That he's convinced us that he doesn't exist. And now everybody's being deceived into worldly thinking. So for them, this is where it starts. They thought there was many gods. And they had to appeal to them. And that was part of what is being taught in the church. And so that's what he addresses first by lifting up Jesus. He says, verse nine, for, here's the answer to their problem. For in him that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. His point, he says, you, you're trying to appeal to all these gods, but here's the answer. There's one God, Jesus, in him, all the fullness of deity, not a piece not a little bit, but the fullness. And we've seen this already in Colossians. We, we saw this in the book of John when we went, all the deity dwells in Jesus. So there isn't any other. His point is, why would you appeal to all these when there's only one? All the fullness dwells in Jesus. So you can appeal to him alone. But then one of the other questions that we have is how can we be complete? They had the same question. If there's gods, how do we appease them? And here he answers that one as well. In verse 10, he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Jesus, you see, has all the, all the deity dwelling in him. 
And in verse 10, he is the head of all rule and authority. And you are filled in him. The point is you get everything you need in Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the full deity. He has all power, authority. He's the head and you're complete in him. What have we looked at the past two weeks? That you, if you're a Christian, Jesus decides to dwell in you. And so now you are full. His point is don't go to these other things. These empty philosophies. Don't be taken captive because you have Jesus and you have him living in you. So the picture that I had here is of a a spring. If you've ever drank out of a spring, where is it freshest? Where is the water purest? Where, Morgan? (laughs) Right, Right at the source. Right at the source, maybe you've done this. Maybe you've, you've hiked a mountain and you've gotten to where a spring is just coming out and you, you put your, your water under there and you drink it. It's, it's pure, it's cold, it's good. But if you go down the mountain, that same stream, eventually it's muddy. All the deer peed in it. No, I'm serious. And so that's one of the reasons why as it goes further away from the source, it gets polluted, it gets dirty, and you're not going to drink it down there. In a, it, this is the same idea. All these other philosophies and ideas, they're so far from the source. There may be bits of truth in some of them. There may be, but they're so far from the source, but now they're polluted. They're dirtied. But at the source, it's pure. It's clean. And so we can go, we're talking here about thinking, uh, about beliefs. We can go to the source and drink from that. Remember when Jesus was at the well and he was talking to the Samaritan woman? And he told her that she could have living water welling up inside her. That's the idea of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That we have this living water coming from within us. We have Jesus, the source, actually inside us. And so why would we be deceived by any of these other ways of thinking? Now, he addresses that there's not many gods, there's only one, and that's Jesus. And that helps us now also. And then he goes on to talk about circumcision, which seems kind of weird unless you understand the context. What was happening was that these, these people were coming in and they were bringing in some, a form of Gnosticism that they had special thinking. They had special revelation from God. And if you worked hard enough, you can maybe have it too and get to that level. They had mysticism worked in, uh, appealing to the various gods and rituals. And then they had some of Judaism coming in there too. Some of that with circumcision. Now, they were coming in. This was Colossae. This was not a Jewish city. This was a Gentile city. So in general, the Christians here weren't circumcised when they were babies. So now these teachers are coming in going, oh, you want to follow God now? You need to go get circumcised. Can you imagine that? Being a 40-year-old, a 30-year-old, whatever, and going now to be right with God, you know, you got to finish this. You got to go get circumcised. You know, Paul talks elsewhere about this mutilating the flesh. Now, there was value in this in the Old Testament. This was part of being part of God's people. And so the Jews would circumcise their baby on the eighth day. That's the way they did it. And you could convert to Judaism. And if you did, you needed to get circumcised. But no longer is that the case. The law has been replaced by Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's talking about here. You no longer need this sign to be part of God's people because we have a different sign now. And that's what he addresses. So with that context, look at at verse 11. He says, in him, again, in Jesus. Do you recognize he's saying this a lot? In him, in him, in him. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
We have a new sign now, and it's baptism. I like that one better. We, we don't need to mutilate the flesh. We can just be dunked in water, but it's the same idea. The same idea of being, being associated with God and with his people. That's why we have baptism now. And in baptism, you see what happens. It's a symbol of what happens at, at an inner level of, of being changed, of being changed from being an enemy to God, of being a friend of God, uh, an enemy of God to his child, his son or his daughter. So circumcision is not needed anymore, but now baptism, we do that as a symbol. And here's the key. Here's what we need to understand. Anytime any work is added to salvation, it attempts to bypass the cross. And churches do this all the time. That you're a Christian, now you have to do these certain things. Anytime works are added in any way, it's trying to bypass the cross, which is deadly. It's deadly because once we start to think that we can do anything of value, once we think that we can add to our salvation, we're going to go around what Jesus did on the cross and say, I can add to it. Now we're taking what Jesus did on the cross by shedding his blood and saying, you know what? That now we also need this part, meaning he didn't do enough. It's deadly. It's not some little sin. It's not some little disbelief. This is a demonic belief that has come into the church forever and ever that you need to add works to what Jesus did. And so this is his point that Jesus did it all. And for you now, your response is faith. Now, I wanted to point this out. For us, we, we look back and go, okay, they, they believed in many gods. They believed you had to be circumcised. Like, that's all crazy. Who would think that? That's just stupid. But in their culture, in their context, that was normal thinking. For them, that was acceptable. It wasn't off the wall for them. For them, that was kind of just the way things were. And so it was countercultural for them to go, no, Jesus alone. No, we don't have to do all these things. No, it's by faith. And there's one God. That was countercultural. Now look now, what does our society tell us? The things that our society tells us sound good. Just like to them back then, those things sounded good. They sounded true. It's what their fathers and grandfathers and great-great-grandparents, they all believed. And so this is something different now. And so for us, we're being raised up in the society that tells us crazy things that sound kind of good. You know, think about it. The idea of tolerance. I'd say that's a big empty philosophy right now, which sounds really good. Let's be tolerant everybody's free to believe what they believe. And that sounds so loving. And I've heard Christians often say this in communication with, with non-believers. You know what? Well, I believe. Saying it in a way to make the other person feel like what they believe is okay too. Well, I believe Jesus. And right there, just saying it that way kind of cuts the knees out from the truth. And so this, but it sounds good. And that's the point I want to make. It sounds good. Tolerance, everybody can believe what they want to believe. But believing the wrong thing leads you to hell. And so the loving thing is actually the opposite of boldly and lovingly sharing the truth about Jesus Christ, which is countercultural. It'll get you fired. It'll get you, you know, ostracized in school to say you actually have the truth because we live in a world that says you can't have the truth. Many of the current accepted ways of thinking are not only wrong, but are dangerous, but are dangerous. They're empty deceit. Their empty philosophies led them away from Jesus. Ours do also. I think one of the big ones we have now is science. That truth needs to be tested in a lab. And we Christians can get wrapped up in this too. That what we, what we learn in, in a laboratory can be tested and retested. And we have some science teachers in here, at least one. <laughs> that, that, that's where you find absolute truth. But science changes all the time. 
And what they don't want you to believe is a lot of the whole evolutionary science has been proven wrong, but they keep teaching it. When I was a youth pastor years ago, I actually took Brendan's, uh, I think he was in sixth grade or seventh grade. And I took his science book that was teaching evolution. And I took some of their biggest arguments and went and researched them. And they had already been proven wrong like years ago, but they're still in there. They're still in the science textbooks. And the scientists who did the test have come back and said, that was a faulty test. It's not right. And they're still teaching it in school. It's this empty philosophy leading people away from Jesus. Because think about that. If evolution is true, maybe you haven't thought about it, then the earth has to be really, really old. And if the earth is really, really old, then evolution can be true. And so a lot of the, the science wrapped up in all of that, it's circular logic. So, and you hear about it in church, we talk about it, how old is the earth? Well, I don't really care. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. But if you're telling me the earth is really, really old because it has to because of evolution, well, that's the opposite of what the Bible would teach. And so what we're seeing here is let's go to the source. Because kind of like the pyramids, if only somebody were there, maybe the one that designed it, well, guess what? We have the designer. We have the one that was there and we can trust him with that. If, uh, if you're going to a secular college, you, you, handful of others going to it, you're going you're gonna to get this in school. You're going to get belittled. You're going to get uh, condescended upon if you claim Jesus, if you claim creation, you're going to look at it like you're stupid. That's just the way it happens nowadays. But the truth, and, and this is what's dangerous, don't be taken captive. And even those of us outside of college, we've, we've moved on, don't be taken captive. He said that to them, that's relevant to us. Don't be taken captive. We can believe what the Bible says. We can believe that Jesus is enough. You know, side note, sermon in a sermon, parents, teach your kids. <laughs> parents, you, you know, we've chosen in our family that our kids go to public school and that's great, but prepare them, teach them, get them ready for what they're going to encounter so that when they come home, they're like, hey, they taught us that, you know, evolution and, and all this stuff, dinosaurs were way before man and, and and our kids, ideally, we've given them the books and there's creation books for kids and stuff to learn how to think through it. Because our faith is not one where you blindly believe. It's one where there's absolute truth to it. You can study it and it's proven. And so help your kids learn how to think because they're going to have to think as they enter this world, not just blindly say, I believe, but at times blindly believe <laughs> because the rest of the things have proven true. You can believe Jesus in the things that can't be proven. So that was a side note, parents, it's up to you. Teach your kids. But then he goes on and I think he addresses what is extremely helpful for us, which gets to the deeper things of life is how do we be right with God? Now we see here, let me flip back real quick, talking about these false thinking. Uh, Colossians 1.16, we've read this before. But Colossians 1.16, now again, pointing to Jesus, he says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is eternal, divine, the creator and sustainer of all. So he can speak with, he can speak with authority. The problem, as I was, again, this morning dwelling over this, what's our problem? We don't like his answers. Because a lot of times his answers are bow the knee to him. His answers are be dead to self and alive to him. Follow him. Let him be in control. We want to be in control, don't we? 
We want to have something to do with our salvation. We want to be able to work for it. We want relativism to be true. Evolution could be great if that was true because then there's no morality. I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what's true. And so it sounds good to go our own way, but Jesus speaks with authority against what the world says. Here's another one of our worldly philosophies. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you said this. Do what makes you happy. I've heard this advice given. As long as they're happy, I don't care. (laughs) Parents to kids, as long as they're doing what makes them happy. But Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. That it's not about our happiness. That it's about him. And I would argue though that when it's about him, we will have peace and joy in life, but not tied to circumstances. The, the, The world would tell us, be happy based on worldly circumstances, but we have something way greater that's not based on worldly circumstances. As Paul and I were wrestling over this this week, even those questions, do what makes you happy, the idea of people that think, is there a God, then how to be right? And, it, and Paul brought out something I didn't notice as I was thinking through it and thinking through the philosophies, that what would the general thinking of our culture be if you ask them the question, is mankind, men and women, are we inherently good or inherently not good? At our core, are we good or not good? And the world, most would say, people are generally good. And if that's the case, if we are generally good to begin with, then we can fix ourselves. Then we can be improved upon. Then psychology can help. Then maybe it's just a chemical imbalance and we can take some medication to fix that which that's not all bad, by the way. (laughs) Sometimes that's excellent. But we go to this place of we're generally good. You know, we're okay. We just need to work on a little bit. So read some self-help books and work on yourself. But Jesus would say, no, we're broken. Even more than that, we're dead. And so what can a dead person do about their deadness? Absolutely nothing. And that's what he moves to here. That's what he's going to, talking about Jesus, this this core issue, because they believe the same thing. What can we do to appease the gods? What do we need to do? What what are the rituals? What are the sacrifices? What is it? Circumcision? Okay, I'll do that. Whatever it takes. But the point is, if you're broken, you can't do anything about it. Jesus has to do it all. Romans 3, 23. What's the real issue? Sin. For For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is the issue. And then Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our condition. Dead. If you've sinned, the wages of sin is death. A dead person cannot do anything about their deadness. Our human condition is that we are dead and need to be made alive. Go into a, a, a graveyard and see how many of those dead people can make themselves alive again. It's impossible. So how does he do it? Romans 5, 12 and 15. Great verses. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died... Through one man's trespass, that's Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So death reigns because Adam sinned and so did you, (laughs) so did I. 
The wages of sin is death. Nothing you can do about it. But the free gift is not like the trespass where we've all done it. The free gift is, is beneficial to all who by faith accept him by the work of one person, Jesus Christ. And so that transitions to what Paul talks about next here in Colossians. Because if our condition is that we're dead and we need to be made alive, how does he do this? The barrier is sin. We just saw that. The barrier is sin. What does he do? Beautiful stuff. Look at Colossians 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's our part, faith. And you who were dead in your trespass, in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So our part is faith. You saw that. His part is making us alive in him, forgiving all our trespasses. That's necessary. The barrier is sin. It has to be dealt with. How does he deal with it? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. They had the same issue. How do you be right with God? Do all these things. We tend to go the same way. Ask most people how you get to heaven. They'll say, as long as your good outweighs your bad. That's another false teaching that's leading people to hell <laughs> because they'll think as long as I'm good enough. But he says, you can't be good enough. And good thing, Jesus dealt with it. He nailed it to the cross. The picture that he paints here is beautiful. I love it. Look, look at it. Dead, made alive. Because of our trespasses, we were dead. But he has forgiven those, verse 13, by canceling the record of debt. So picture this, this record of debt. Uh, at, at that time and at now, you know, you have a, a mortgage on your house. It's a record of debt. It's all written out. Imagine there was a debt of every wrong thing you've ever done. Everything you've ever said, anything you've ever thought, anything you've ever done. How long would that list be? <laughs> Maybe from this wall to that wall and back again. Imagine if everyone was written out, like a computer program that every time you send, it was like, bink, bink, bink. And you could actually see your tally. And at the end of each day, you could pull it up on your computer and look at the tally. We'd be hosed. Well, imagine that all, you know, you push print and you run out of ink five times or more while it's printing out this long list. That's the list, the record of debt. And Jesus takes that, it says, and he cancels it. He doesn't burn the list. I think this is interesting. He doesn't bury the list. He cancels the list. The list doesn't disappear. It gets paid. Here's where we, we wrestle with this. Okay, if God was God, he could save us without dealing with the sin. But God is also holy and just, so he can't. The debt has to be paid. He can't just say, debt forgiven, you don't have to pay it. It has to be paid. And so that's what he does. It's like this, this list written and it's rolled up. It's a list, an accusation. So somebody is accused of a crime. They're going to go before a judge and there is a, a witness that has written out their testimony and it's been sealed with wax, uh, an, an authoritative testimony sealed. And what Jesus does in this verse is he takes that seal and he smears it. So it has no authority anymore. So the witness against us is smeared. And how does he smear it so it has no authority? It has no weight anymore? He nails it to the cross. I thought about putting a cross up here and having a nice big list of my stuff and just nailing it. Just picture that though. Your list, everything you've ever done, 
And every worldly system will tell you the things you need to do. Every religion will tell you the things you need to do. Even some warped Christian beliefs will tell you what you need to do. But the truth is, is Jesus took that, rolled it up, and he nailed it to the cross. But how did he do that? He was nailed to the cross. When he died, the sins of the world were laid upon his shoulders. The burdens of your sin and mine were laid upon his shoulders. No other system has an answer like this. No other religion, no worldly system, nothing has a system like this where God would choose to come and take it on his own. That's what happened. And that's what he's telling them. Stop working for it. Stop trying to add anything. Jesus is enough because he took it on the cross and he could because he was fully divine. In order for us to live, our sin debt must be paid. God does not ignore the debt. It must be paid. So Jesus paid it on the cross. You see how we always go back to the cross. We never mature back or, or past the cross. We have to go back to what he did. We need his grace day in and day out. And so the question for us in context here, he says, don't be deceived by wrong thinking. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you? When you read the Bible, can you believe that this is enough? When the world sends some kind of truth at you that sounds good, but it's opposed to Christ, can you immediately go, wrong, I go to Christ? No, Jesus alone. I read a book years ago by an author, a genius. I mean, the guy was a genius, but he was trying to make Genesis and evolution line up. And the guy was a scientific genius. And so, I mean, all of his stuff, half of it, I couldn't understand. But his logic was, was just flawed because it, they can't both line up. But he, he felt like he had to because this worldly system seems true. And so I have to make them work together. No, you don't. You are free to believe Jesus alone. You are free to drink from the source, the pure source of Jesus alone. Not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world. Jesus alone. Now look, though, at what happens. Verse 15. I love the way he ends this. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Rulers and authorities. These are demonic spirits. These are fallen angels that are opposed to God and opposed to us. They are behind all the false religions. They are behind the false teachings that lead us away from Jesus. They are behind evolution. They are behind this sexual revolution happening right now. Demons are behind those things, but they're beat. Ultimately, they're beat. They won't last. That's why he gives this picture here of, an, of a Roman triumph this parade of a king that has won a battle and, and he brings his spoils and he brings those in Roman times, they would, they would you know, go into Rome and they would bring their spoils. They would have all the soldiers that won the battle and then they would have those who they conquered, the kings, the, the rulers, the generals, and they would be tramped through in hum, humiliation. Sometimes they would be naked, just brought before everybody. That's what happens here to the rulers and authorities, the demons behind these things, that Jesus has disarmed them put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is finished. We sang that song, it is finished. It is finished. Because Jesus on the cross won the battle. He rose from the dead victorious. It is finished. Worldly ways of thinking will all fail. They're not backed by the fullness of God. They will not fulfill you or deal with your sin. 
That's the big idea that we see in these verses. Worldly thinking, all variations are polluted streams. All of them. And they sound good. Here's the thing. They sound good. And most people outside of these doors believe them. And us in here are tempted to believe them. But they're polluted streams. Drinking them will make you sick and may kill you. So we can stick with the source. We can stick with the source. I think this is a valuable passage for us because the church needs to be the place where the pure truth of the gospel is taught, where we can come together and encourage each other by the pure teaching of Jesus, where we can quickly recognize false teaching and gently, lovingly bring it in line with what the Bible teaches because that's where life is found. And God is on the move. Next week, we're starting a series, When God Moves. It's pretty exciting. It's gonna be a three-week series. Uh, I'm coming out of my socks about it. Because God, <laughs> that's an okay way to say it, right? <laughs> because God, God is on the move. I don't know if you know it, but God is moving. And when he moves, great things happen. Last week, we spent time in prayer and we talked, God wants to move. But when God moves, things have to happen. We have to come in line with him. He has to be enough for us. And repentance is part of that. But the main point of this is that if Jesus is in you, follow him alone. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm tempted to, to address every empty philosophy that this world throws at us. It's scary as a parent to see what the world is trying to teach our kids, what the school is teaching our kids, what's in the books that our kids are learning that are not only false but evil, that are backed by demons trying to lead our kids and us away from you. I beg of you, God, to move in a way, move in a new way to bring many to the pure truth of you, the pure truth of your gospel. We can't do anything about our sin, but Jesus, you took our sin, you canceled our debt, you nailed it to the cross, and we thank you. We thank you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would use your word to convict our hearts. Where do we have some errant thinking? Where are we tempted to believe what the world says? Holy Spirit, show us that, please. And then show us the truth in Jesus. Give us confidence in you that we don't have to live in stress. We don't have to live anxious trying to make up for our own sin because it's canceled. It's all about you. Paul lifts you up, Jesus, and I want to just lift you up. It's all about you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.